We saw last week when we looked at, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 20. We saw last week when we were in Revelation 7 through 10, we saw the battle of Armageddon and how it actually comes about and what it actually means and how the lost arrive at the final judgment. And as we saw, Armageddon isn't a physical battle against God. There's no tanks, there's no bullets, there's no guns. Uh, there's nothing except rebellion against God. Worldwide rebellion destroyed in an instant by the Lamb of God, also the great warrior. And when the Lord comes, of course, we know he gathers his own to himself. And the lost are killed at the coming of the Lord and join the rest of the unconverted dead at the throne. And that is pictured many ways in the scriptures. And as the first century readers came to the end of the book of Revelation here, I believe they understood um, that the book was written fairly late in the first century. They probably knew the words of Jesus that we're going to read from Matthew. They probably knew the words of Paul that we're going to read in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians. And this is on your outline. I put it out there to save us time from flipping through the Bible and to also show how these things go together. So, it's pictured many ways. Christ explained the end by parable. Matthew 13, 36-43. It's on your outline. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, or often known as the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares grow together until the end of time. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and an enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And of course, all the disciples heard that. Uh, much of the, and they were the ones that asked the question, tell us the parable. And uh, that's exactly what Christ Jesus the Lord does. So we need to be able to fit our theology into what the, the Lord says here about uh, the coming and the burning. Revelation 14 14 through 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And that's a good thing. That's a good reaping. We're actually seeing the parable of Matthew 13 played out in a different way here. Let's read the rest of it from 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had the authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung the sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. 
and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And we need to see how these two incidents fit together, because they do fit together. It's what we're talking about, and it's how the end comes. And um, it's the very familiar passages of how the end comes that do not contradict these passages, but actually further explain them. And um, if you read them in its greater context, you'll see that the reason these passages are given is for the encouragement of the saints. And they did encourage the saints. The Thessalonians would get it all messed up, and um, the Corinthians would get it all messed up. They both would, would uh, make great mistakes. Well, these are the remedies to the mistakes that are made. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, still on your outline. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, they didn't miss the resurrection. Resurrection hasn't happened yet. Okay. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, we who are, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Sometimes we're criticized for believing like this. They say, what a ridiculous thing to believe, uh, that um, this, this has to be a secret rapture, this cannot be the second coming, because uh, how ridiculous would it be uh, for us to go up and meet them in the clouds and then come back down again? Well, I don't see anything about coming back down again. I see going up, I see... And we will see destruction in just a moment, and we'll see a great judgment in just a moment. So it's really a, a criticism that comes from, from not looking closely enough. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53 says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Say the same thing in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And so I may have misspoke a moment ago and said the wrong passage to the wrong passage, I don't know. But if you had it in your outline, you can see it there. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 17, uh, there is no need uh, for, for sorrow and such like that. And in 1 Corinthians 50, that would appear uh, that there was the whole idea that if you died, you missed it. You miss the whole thing, which is very sad and, and very discouraging to the Corinthian church. First Corinthians is written very early in, in church history, but some of them had already died. Wouldn't that be sad? I just think about some of the loved ones we've had in our church. And you're sitting in the first century, and you're waiting for the Lord to return. And now you realize that so-and-so and so-and-so, without using any names, died. And you think, oh, they missed it. They're not going to be able to be part of the Lord's kingdom. And of course, that would be great heresy. Uh, what we see in 1 Thessalonians is the fact that uh, God 
raises those who have died, those that have fallen asleep. And, those that, and that includes Old Testament and New Testament, by the way. And so those that are with the Lord today in spirit only uh, receive their glorified bodies, as do those who, and you can say raptured, that's okay, although the Bible never uses the word rapture, uh, but the caught, the catching up is um, what we're talking about here. And so the same coming does just the opposite for the lost. The great hope of the Christian is the great doom of the lost who are alive when the Lord comes. They're destroyed by the coming of Christ, instant death, to join with the dead, whether in the sea, so to speak, or in the place of the dead, hell. And we see that from our passage tonight. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. You'll need to turn there. I didn't put that on your outline. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. And by the way, that's kind of an interesting way to put it. I saw the dead, great and small. Every other place in Revelation says, I saw the dead small and great. Here, it just goes the other way. And I think that catches our attention. Um, then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. So we can see that in verses 13 and 14, uh, we see the final picture of the final day. We've seen many pictures of this final day as we've gone through the book of Revelation. We've seen it again and again and again. And uh, really, if, if you wonder about that, uh, you can listen to last week's sermon because we spent the time to look at that. We, we looked at scripture after scripture after scripture, which talked about what we just read in very short compass here. Because this is not the only time that Armageddon and uh, the final battle, Armageddon verses 7 through 10, and then the great judgment that comes upon that. It's been cyclical and told to us again and again and again. And I think we still have some of the outlines maybe under the, under the, the table, but not the table, but the little stand that's in the back there. We might have some left. I'm not sure. But uh, at any rate, what we see now is the actual judgment itself. And the kind of descriptions that it's talking about in verse 11. I saw a great white throne coming from Daniel and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. How many times have we seen that kind of imagery in the book so far? And, um, and no place is found for them. And we've seen this kind of imagery. We've seen the stars uh, that fall from the sky. The sky being rolled back as a scroll, all these things, which is not to be taken literally, talks about destruction. Symbolical ways of speaking about the final great day when everyone great and small stand before the judge sitting on his throne. Um, so, the books were opened 
turning page per over, and we see about the book of life. Okay, the book of life. Now, as we talk about the book of life, it becomes very, very important. Uh, I would equate the book of life with the covenant of redemption that we've been talking about at the 10 o'clock service, where father and son have agreed together that the father would elect and the son would redeem, and then the Holy Spirit has his part, as in time, he changes each of our hearts and uh, makes us willing to come to Christ and willing to believe. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. The book of life, when was the book of life written? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, it was written in eternity past. We're going to see that. We're going to be looking at a whole bunch of scriptures talking about that. And, and that's important. And as one example, not to pick on any one hymn, but, but bad hymns lead to bad theology. They really do. And there's a hymn, I, I like the tune, and it's fun to sing, but it, it's not helpful. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. You know, and so you make a decision, and they write down your name. And, and that's exactly what people believe, and they, that song hasn't, hasn't helped. You know, it really hasn't. So bad, bad songs, will, bad hymns will lead to bad theology. Uh, but you know, there's some truth in it too. Um, the, angel, the angels rejoice at a sinner that comes to saving grace? They do. Now why would they rejoice? Because they don't know what's in the book of life. The angels don't know everything. The books, the God knows. The Father knows. The Son knows. The Spirit knows who's in the book of life. But until the books are open and the book of life is open, it isn't known. So really, what we see when Christ talks about the angels rejoicing over one sinner that repents uh, in the parable of um, uh, the prodigal son, it's very, very true. They rejoice. Uh, the, the godly angels rejoice uh, because they see the plan coming to fruition. Angels don't know everything. We're told that angels uh, desire to look into the mystery of uh, what God has done. You know, they, they just don't know. And, and be glad they don't know. Satan doesn't know. Be glad he doesn't know. That, that's a good thing. Only God knows everything. So we find out when we find out. Okay, well, you should know. You should know if your name is in the book of life. If you've repented and turned to Jesus Christ the Lord, your name is in that book of life. And when you stand at the great judgment day, you will need not to fear, and you will not be judged. You will not be judged according to your works. And the reason you will not be judged according to your works is because the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why we're talking about covenant theology, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, lived his life sinlessly and perfectly, obeyed God perfectly, and his righteousness is imputed to us. And, you know, we're in Christ. And so when we stand at the great white throne judgment, I know it's often talked about that Christians, how ashamed you're going to be because all your secret sins are going to be flashed on a screen for the whole world to see, you know. Ah, pretty crummy way to enter heaven. <laughs> pretty crummy way to enter heaven. It isn't true. However, works are judged. If you're not in Christ, your works will be judged. And this is exactly what the passage tells us. 
as we go through here. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead, talking about the lost, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then he goes on further, and the sea and the dead, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the sea who were in them, and they were judged. And that was just the universality of it, just to show that it doesn't matter if you died at sea, it doesn't matter if you died naturally, you're in the place of the dead, and those that are in the place of the dead today are going to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And that's what it says in verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the people that died in the sea were not exempted. They're just showing that, uh, you know, just another way of just talking about universality. They we're thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, let's talk about the book of life. This is not the only place where the book of life is found. Um, the book of life um, is found throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, and we see this here. Um, in, let me get my notes here properly, okay. Uh, Philippians 4, 3. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companions, Paul writing, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I guess you'll be reading Philippians 4 next week, right? Okay, Mark that one down in your mind, and when Mike, Pastor Mike reads that, you know, it's, oh yeah, there it is, Clement, one of the, the great fathers of the church, mentioned in the Bible. You know, he's the one, he's actually a second generation from, moved from the apostles, you know. And uh, he's an aged man, as he writes um, first and second Clement there. And Paul mentions him in here, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now here's an interesting verse talking about the book of life. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. So, oh boy, I hope he doesn't blot my name out of the book of life. I'm so scared that my name is going to be blotted out of the book of life. I, I know I've done so many wrong things. I'm afraid I'm going to be blotted out of the book of life. Is this a promise or is it a threat? Is it a promise or a threat? Read it again. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before the angels. That's not a threat. That's a promise. I'm not going to. You say, but what if I don't conquer? Well, if you don't persevere to the end, then you never knew him. Okay. So then you may have something to fear. Okay. If you really don't know the Lord, then, then you have something to fear. But the true Christian will never have his name blotted out of the book of life. It's a promise, not a threat. Revelation 13.8. Now we get the flip side of the book of life. And the real reason that the lost, the lost will be judged according to their works, but there's another judgment here too. 
Revelation 13, 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Okay. Revelation 20, 12. Saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so there's a judgment of works, but notice the next uh, couple verses down. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Christ, your name is in the book of life. In Adam, judged according to your works and thrown into the lake of fire because your name is not in the book of life. Okay. Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those, talking about heaven, talking about the new heaven and new earth, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, with proper exegesis and an understanding of systematic theology, I do not believe this is all that difficult to unravel. It's why those that believe in covenant theology don't um, believe in dispensationalism, to tell you the truth. Uh, they may think they do, but they really don't, and, and, and I really don't think you could, and that doesn't make you a heretic by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not trying to say that. You know, we have good brethren that are, that are dispensationalists, and we appreciate them, and uh, we'll, we'll share heaven with them. This is all not salvific. But, you know, I think what our confession just simply says in chapter 31 and 32, and I've heard people complain about, well, it doesn't say very much. Now, I'd beg to differ. Right, let's take a copy here and, and just read it without comment. And I think it says a mouthful. You're going to find it in the back of your hymnal. And it's, it's short. Yeah, I'll agree it's short. It's certainly not a, a book by any stretch of the imagination. It's a few paragraphs. But it's on page 686. Aren't you glad it wasn't on page 666? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 686. The state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead. 686. Paragraph 1. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness and received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies the scriptures acknowledge none. What do you think they're fighting against by saying that? Purgatory. Yeah, purgatory. Yeah. Purgatory. That's what they are fighting against, and some believed in limbo and all sorts of things. Okay. Second of all, at the last day, such of the saints are found alive, shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. 
You notice it's the saved and the lost that are raised up. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor, taken from 1 Corinthians, the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. And then chapter 32, God has appointed a day when he'll judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the the tribunal of Christ, that's the throne we're talking about, to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and glory with everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And third of all, uh, this is very, very good, by the way, this third paragraph, because it tells us why prophecy exists. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment both to deter men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. And we can say that and we don't need a newspaper telling us that it's lining up. First century Christians could say that. Okay? And so all Christians ought to be able to say that. Okay. Now let me just give you some observations on the book of life here. We talked about the book of life. Some some observations from it. Then I think we have time to do just a little bit more and we'll be done tonight. Some observations. Very simple from what we just read and the scriptures that are given. I didn't give you the observations on the outline. I didn't want to go two pages or four pages. You know. Christians have their name written in the book of life. Philippians 4.3, Revelation 3.5, 21.27. The lost do not have their names written in this book. We read the passages, Revelation 13.8 and 25. 20.15, sorry. Uh, and then we never read of anyone having their name added to this book. And with reference to Christians, the Greek tense shows their name was already there or is there presently. And then the book of life is only one of the books used to judge the lost, but it's the one that makes the difference between salvation and damnation. You see, it's their works in verse 12, uh, which is their own doing, and it's Adam's doing in verse 15. Okay. Now, with that being said and done, There is a principle that God judges according to works. There's a principle that God judges according to works. And we see this, and it's on your outline again, in in Babylon. In Babylon, Babylon is symbolizing wicked human society wherever it happens to be. In today's world, it would be Russia. In today's world, it would be China. In today's world, it would be the Middle East. In today's world, it would be South America. In today's world, it would be 
the United States of America. Babylon is wherever we have wicked human society. But remember this. You can't throw society into the lake of fire and judge it. It's individuals that are thrown into the lake of fire and judged. So again, it's just another separation of, of the, the wicked and the, the Christian. Babylon in Revelation 18.5, For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, talking about Babylon. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she's mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who's judged her. And this is wicked human society. Back from the Tower of Babel on from all time until the Lord returns and does what he says he's going to do. And then persecutors of God's people. This would have been uh, of special, uh, you know, the first century Christians lived in a very difficult age. Uh, Rome was powerful. Rome wanted you to worship Caesar. Okay. Rome wanted you to burn incense to Caesar. Uh, actually, um, uh, Pastor Ken alluded to it this morning when he was talking about uh, what Christians in Japan faced and what they were asking him to do. Oh, just a little incense. Uh, we had a missionary, Timothy Peach, he used to tell us the same thing. Uh, he said, um, I, right in this church many years ago before he went to be with the Lord himself, he said, Japan has never had a true uh, ingathering of Christians. It's not that there's no Christians there. There are Christians in Japan. But they've never had what we could call a revival with a great ingathering. Korea right now is having a great in-gathering, South Korea, and other places. And we see it in the Philippines, too, even though um, the opposition is strong in the Philippines. Uh, but there's never been that kind of an in-gathering in Japan, uh, at least since um, times of um, uh, before World War II, you know, um, because they came up with a theology. The Japanese theology was that I can bow to the emperor as long as I don't bow in my heart. So the emperor says, bow the knee. I'll bow the knee, but in my heart I'll be saying, but I really don't love the emperor, and I don't think he's God. Aren't you glad the three Hebrew children didn't do that? <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, the three I don't think we'd be reading about the three Hebrew children in the Bible uh, if they had bowed to that golden image but when they bowed to the gold image, uh, they said, we don't know if we're going to live or die, but we're not bowing to your image. We'll trust the Lord. And um, God bless them. Okay. And so I don't know anything about Japanese culture. Timothy Peach, I think, was probably about as much an expert as I would know. Knew more about Japanese culture than I knew. But he said, uh, no, they came up with a theology that uh, it was okay to bow the knee because it's just the body as long as your heart isn't bowing. Don't see that anywhere in the Bible. That, that's against the scriptures. Is he right about, that's why there's been no revival in Japan? I, I don't know. I think those things are hard to, those things are, are going maybe one step further than we ought to go. But we know they shouldn't do that for sure. Okay, 
We're going to finish now. Got a couple more things to say that are not on your outline here. Oh, the persecutors. I didn't read that, did I? The persecutors of God's people. This would have encouraged the first century Christians, especially those that are just about ready to face persecution and some that already had. Uh, Revelation 16, 4 through 7, talking about works, being judged according to your works. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard an altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I would just say there's only one thing better than seeing God's vengeance on the enemies and the killers of God's people. That's when you see the Apostle Paul and you see the persecutors come to faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him. That's far better. But if they don't, Revelation 16, 4 through 7 is what they will get. Well, back to Revelation 20. I saw a great white throne we, we see a lot of symbolism here. White stands for purity. We see it in white robes. We see it in white hair. Here it's a white throne. Usually the throne has been described in multicolored ways like a rainbow in, in Revelation chapter 4. We see the rainbow. We see the rainbow in Ezekiel um, that way too. But this time the throne is pictured as a white throne for purity's sake. And it takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you want to. But I'll read it to you, just about three or four verses from Daniel 7, verse, just two verses, Daniel 7, 9 through 10. And remember, this is the Old Testament. This is Daniel that uh, is a companion book to the book of Revelation talking. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head pure like wool. And we see this, so we see white clothing, we see Christ being pictured with uh, white hair as pure as wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. And there it is. There it is in the Old Testament, elaborated on in the New, which is what we expect. We expect to see seeds of truth and prophecy in the Old Testament and then see them elaborated on in the New. That's what we should expect. And, of course, these are symbolic. Prophecy is always going to be given to us in, in symbolic, symbolic forms. And uh, that's the way the whole book of Daniel, well, not the whole book, but the prophetic book of Daniel is written that way, as is Ezekiel, as is Isaiah, as is Jeremiah. Uh, the prophetic parts are, are always um, given in symbolic form. And the book of Revelation, the same thing, given to us in symbolic forms. So, so at any rate, so there we see those things. So there, there's a lot that we can see, a lot that, that we can learn, and um, we just know. What is the next thing that's going to happen on, on, on God's calendar? A lot of uh, Christians debate. Some of my amillennial friends believe that the, the Lord will not return until there's a, a time of a very intense persecution. 
And you say, well, how long? And they, they get it from the little season that's talked about there. They say, well, you know, maybe it's a couple of weeks, but, you know, Christians are being slaughtered just worldwide. And, and I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I, I, it, if it happens, then, then the Lord will give us the mercy and the Lord will give us the grace. But I, I personally believe that uh, the coming of the Lord is going to take us by surprise. We're not going to see a whole bunch of people dying and say, this is it, you know, we're going to die, you know. Or we're going to die or we're going to be with the Lord. If we can survive a couple more weeks, we'll, we'll make it, you know. I, I just don't, I, but and good men believe that, though. Okay, I'm not trying to mock them. I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to mock. Uh, good, solid, amillennial brethren believe that. Um, I personally think that we're better off to believe that the Lord could come. We're not looking for lining up things. This is my personal opinion. Don't have to agree with it. I don't. I think the Lord could come tomorrow. I think the Lord could come tonight. Do I think the Lord's going to come tonight? Well, um, I, I would be foolish to say I think He's coming tonight, but I think I'd be foolish to say that He can't. <laughs> you know. So we need to be ready. We need to be watchful, and, and that's the reason that prophecy is given. The prophecy of the second coming is to cause us to be on guard. To watch and to wait, for you know not what hour the Lord is coming. And so I don't look for signs, don't look for symbols. It's been 2,000 years of, of sign seeking, and most, many generations have, and not all, but many generations have had their signs that they're just waiting for them to all come to pass. I, I just think not. And so that's my opinion, is um, I, I think it's very likely that uh, the Lord's coming could be in our lifetime. I think it's probably more likely, to tell you the truth, it'll be many years from now. But no one knows. And if we're not watching and we're not waiting, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. When I say watching and waiting, we're probably supposed to be watching and working, to tell you the truth, you know, and, and doing about the Lord's business, living for him until he comes. Let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Father, we know there's a lot of disagreement on exactly how the end of times comes about. It's not surprising. Prophecy is always best understood once it's been fulfilled. So once we're in heaven together, we won't be debating about end times. We'll go, ah, that's what it was. That's what it meant. That's exactly what God said he was going to do. And it'll make all the sense in the world. And we'll spend eternity learning and wondering and growing and being glad in the presence of our great God because ultimately what matters is being in Christ or being in Adam. What ultimately matters is being judged by the book of life where our names are, if we know him, or being judged by our works, which will certainly condemn us and then be condemned because we're not in the book of life. So, Lord, help us to be diligent. Help us to speak to others. Help us to be diligent for ourselves and watch over our own selves and be cautious and careful and yet ever looking. And the reason we call it the blessed hope is because that is the blessed hope. That's when sin will be gone. That's when death will be destroyed. That's when all things that offend will be obliterated. And, Father, because of what you have done through Jesus Christ the Lord and your Spirit, You'll be glorified in ourselves for all eternity. Which is an amazing thing. We know what we are. We know what we're like. But Father, we thank you that you look at us through Jesus Christ the Lord. And we have great hope because of that. May his name be praised. 
And in his name we pray, amen.